0: I once heard a pastor who was concerned that his congregation wasn't getting his message. So he paused one Sunday and he asked him, can anyone tell me what must first happen before we can receive God's forgiveness? Silence fell across the church. And then a little boy shouted from the back, well, first you have to sin. That's a good answer. The sinning part usually comes pretty easy to us, doesn't it? We heard about the original sin this morning in that first reading when God's entire order got pushed out of balance. Of course, the better answer to that question is is we have to first ask for forgiveness and then turn from our sins. So to make sure that I'm talking to the right audience this morning, I want to ask you a simple question. How many of you have ever sinned? Let's see a raising of hands. All right. 100% 100% on something. Well, good. Then that means I'm speaking to the right audience. The good news is, my friends, God forgives our sins, and our God has a big eraser. Can I hear amen to that? Okay. Amen. Well, we could just go ahead and end this sermon right here, I guess. I mean, that covers pretty well, but you're not going to get that lucky. <laughs> Our passage today, friends, talks about a sin that I've often been asked about, the sin referred to as the eternal sin that we hear about in today's gospel from Mark, often sometimes referred to as the unforgivable sin. Well, let me start and clear up any misconceptions right now. If you're sitting right now and you're starting to sweat out there wondering if you've committed the eternal sin, it is safe for me to tell you right now you have not because you're here and the Holy Spirit brought you here and he's still working within your life. That, however, does not give you the green light right now to pat yourself on the back or take a nap. So pay attention with us. Today's message isn't about who's out or who's in or who's going to hell and who's going home. This message today is about a much broader topic, more important topic actually. Back in 2007, ABC News reported on a story of a strange practice that started in an atheist group. According to this article, an atheist movement called the Rational Response Squad, I don't know if any of you remember this, I remember it, well they launched this bizarre challenge called the Blasphemy Challenge. It was based on a misinterpretation of this well-known verse that we hear read today in this gospel. It's a verse that pastors and parishioners are often asked about. And we catch it this morning in the 29th verse of this third chapter where Jesus says these words, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Scary words. This group of atheists believing they were saying something that could not be forgiven, began recording videos in the cell saying they denied the Holy Spirit and that God and the Holy Spirit did not exist. Those videos were posted on YouTube or other sites to promote this atheist movement, this rational response squad. What most distressed us, though, as faith leaders at that time was that this group was targeting young people. They advertised this insane blasphemy challenge in magazines and on websites guided at young people. And there were numerous things wrong with this blasphemy challenge, besides the fact that it was blasphemous. After all, why even bother to dare a deity that you don't believe exists anyway? Doesn't doing something Jesus said not to do in some way give credence to what they were trying to publicly or privately deny? Well, as far as Gump's mother would say, stupid is as stupid does. (laughs) As pastors, I remember the most frustrating thing about this whole craze was it rested and was centered on a total misinterpretation of Jesus' words. He wasn't speaking to 21st century children or teenagers at that time. He was speaking to the religious elite of his time. The religious elite who are accusing Jesus of being in business with Satan. This well-known and feared verse was part of a deeper teaching. And as we know, Scripture cannot be accurately interpreted out of context, right? We say that all the time. So with that, let's set the context for this morning. We're coming to the close of the third chapter of Mark. Since Mark... Since Jesus, in Mark 1, and Jesus came out of the Jordan River after his baptism, when God said, this is my beloved son, which I am well pleased, he hit the ground running in ministry. And from that moment forward, he went right to work, healing, casting out demons, speaking to religious elite, debunking what they were saying in their apostate religion, and continued to move in that direction day after day after day, drawing larger and huger crowds each and every day. By the time we arrive at this passage today, he's moved back down south and is surrounded by a massive crowd that is pressing into him 24-7. In fact, it tells us at the beginning of this reading that they couldn't even eat. So that's where we pick it up. The crowd was trying to figure out exactly what to make of this Jesus. So today we see a couple of various groups in this crowd. The first group is Jesus' family. They show up in the 20th verse. And they think that he's lost his mind. The second group, these scribes, charge that he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And what makes these accusations worse is they're made by people who should have certainly known better. The first statement that he's out of his mind is made by those who grew up with him. The second accusation that he's possessed by Satan came from the scribes, the religious elite of their time. They knew Scripture word for word, dot for dot. They should have recognized Jesus' miracles as the work of the coming Messiah. But interestingly, the only person who accurately identified who Jesus was other than God in the Jordan when He came out occurred in Mark chapter 1 verse 24 when we heard from someone who accurately described Jesus, and that was a demon. He was a demon that Jesus cast out of the possessed man. And the demon boldly declared, we know who you are, Jesus. You're the Son of God. It's fascinating that the demons always recognize Jesus throughout Scripture. And it's typical in God's kingdom, those who should have understood often didn't or didn't want to. And those who were least likely to understand often did. So we ask ourselves, why is that? Well, Scripture says in many places that it was often because people had hardened hearts. Well, we don't hear that term very often today. Someone's got a hardened heart. But something that we do hear today is he's hard-headed. She's hard-headed. And at times in our lives, friends, I think we could all say we're guilty. Sometimes, for whatever reason, we become unwilling to budge on some topic. We dig our heels in and won't accept the truth even if it's staring us right in the face. So what does Jesus mean in this passage today about this eternal sin that we hear about? What does he mean? Well, Jesus was saying the eternal sin is to deny the divine power of God working through Jesus and to say that the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of Satan. That's blasphemy. It's blasphemous. And it would only be said some by someone who is blaspheming or incomprehensibly ignorant. And these religious leaders were not. If faith in Jesus as the Son of God is foundational for our salvation, The denying the work of the Holy Spirit within Jesus is a fundamental rejection of our only way of forgiveness and salvation. These scribes today were attributing the work of Jesus to that of Satan, and they were connecting the Holy Spirit with Satan, and they were doing so, and when they did, they were committing the eternal sin. Their hardness of hearts blinded them to seeing the truth, But it is worth noting here that they never did question the miracles, ever, anywhere in Scripture. They knew, in fact, that the only one that could do those kind of miracles was God himself or the work of Satan. The fact of the matter is is that they saw Jesus as a threat to their power and to their apostate control of the people of that time those teens posting those videos saying they were denying the Holy Spirit were simply misguided. And the beautiful reality is that on this side of the cross, under grace, there is no such thing as an unforgivable sin. In fact, if you're breathing and are of a sound mind, forgiveness is always available. I should point out, though, it doesn't give you the opportunity to go on sinning, and it will not eliminate sin's consequences in our lives or the final judgment behind this life. Those who don't yet know the truth or who have been misinformed will hopefully encounter someone from St. Barnabas or some other family of God church around us, and they won't get hung up in this text today on verse 29, but will see in this text something much bigger, much broader, much more inclusive unlike atheism folks the blasphemy challenge isn't news anymore fads as we know all come and go but there's some things that never do change and the truth is that the things that don't change this is that there are still countless souls out there who are lost and who are desperately seeking family and fellowship. So instead of focusing on what constitutes an eternal sin in our text today, we need to focus our thoughts on growing the family of God. This slide here. After the scribes accused Jesus of being in business with Satan, he then chewed them up and spit them out, as he always did. He did them in this text today, though, through a series of short parables. In those verses, found in verse 22 to 27, which is a great sermon for another day, Jesus uses these parables to pick them apart. I want to point out something here. Through this year, the rest of this year, we're going to be in Mark's gospel. And Mark had a writing style that he often used in his gospel, unlike the other gospel writers, where he would start a narrative which he did today, and then insert another story in the middle of it, and then return to the original narrative. He does that today in this text here today. So we're going to pick it up where Jesus picks up the original narrative, where the crowds were pressing into him after he dismissed these religious leaders back to the place where he was encountering the crowd. So we pick that up at verse 31, and I ask you to follow along with me. And his mother and his brothers came, And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother my brothers and sisters the important takeaway from this gospel this day in Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus reveals the new definition a radical definition of what family looks like in God's kingdom it's in these verses between 33 and 35 that Jesus describes how the kingdom of God radically reorients our relationship to and expands our family tree. Jesus' response to the crowd in verse 33 sounds cold and insensitive when first heard. Who are my mother and my brothers, he says. It may sound harsh, as if his biological family had not yet met his new definition of family at that moment. But we learn later that they all became part of the broader, more inclusive family of God after his death and resurrection. In fact, Jesus' mother was in the upper room at Pentecost, according to Acts 1. James and Jude, Jesus' biological brothers, became leaders in the first century church and became writers of epistles in the New Testament, which bears their names. That fact alone, my friends, bears witness to the resurrection and the power of forgiveness that Jesus won for us all on the cross. If his own family doubted the stories about him at first, they had overcome those doubts and were able to enter into a new family relationship with Jesus themselves on the other side of the cross. That is a reflection of the personal relationship that we can have with Jesus also. We can go from being socially separated, isolated from Jesus by our sin, to being family members, able to call Him brother, sister, and even mother, according to one of our old old saints. Francis of Assisi, 13th century saint, penned these words in his writing, Letter to the Faithful. I think it's a beautiful description of our relationship with Jesus, including the idea of being spouses. Listen, and I quote We are spouses when the faithful soul is united by the Holy Spirit to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are brothers, moreover, when we do the will of his Father who is in heaven, mothers, when we carry him in our heart and body through love and a pure and sincere conscience, and give him birth through holy activity, which must shine before others by example. Man, that is a beautiful description of an intimate relationship with Jesus. This passage today isn't about eternal sin. It's not about eternal sin that excludes us from Jesus' family. It's about our undeserved opportunity for inclusion into a family. The fishermen that Jesus appointed as apostles are all in the family. The tax collectors, prostitutes, and all those former sinners, all those demon-possessed are all in the family. And who knows? Even those atheists on YouTube may be in the family because they still have opportunity. There's always room, friends, in Jesus' family for anyone who's ready to repent and accept Him as their Lord and Savior and obediently go about the will of God. That's what's required. The will of God is heard in Jesus' words right out of His mouth in John chapter 6, verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Seeing the Son, believing in Him, is what it means to do the will of God. As St. Francis points out here, it's also about how we live our lives right here in God's family in the here and now. Being part of God's family means loving those who are unlovable. It's through love that our light shines in this dark, Broken world. It's about living a life that focuses on what we hold in common as sinners saved by grace rather than focusing on the things that divide us. Dear brothers and sisters, there are countless souls out there still searching for more in their lives. They're seeking identity. They're seeking purpose. And they're seeking a family to belong to. This passage today creates that family. It gave all of us an opportunity. No matter what your family dynamic looked like, we all got dysfunctional families, right? We can probably agree on that. Well, we have a perfect family in this family. And it's inclusive. And it's contingent upon us and what we do in this church as we've committed to pray through these months of this summer of how we're going to identify ourselves in this community to broaden and grow the family in here. Because the love that you see displayed in here on a Sunday is desperately desired out there. And they're seeking it in every other lost way you can find it. This computerized and personal world desperately needs authentic love found in a relationship among God's family. So they can take on a new life the life that we've been given. If anything, we have learned the importance of that through COVID, through the separation we've experienced. So let us be on guard in this season. May our words and actions always be inclusive. And may we continue to pray and commit to obediently do God's will in our community through acts of love and humble servants in this family, and the broader family out there. And let us give and live lives that always reflect the evidence of the Holy Spirit residing in us so others may be drawn to this family, to this house, to a relationship with you and your relationship with Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. (laughs)